Many Aboriginal people work within the system. There are many Aboriginal people who work within middle management of bureaucracies right across all of the portfolios of government. Some Aboriginal people work in high bureaucratic positions such as executive positions and heads of departments. We've got Aboriginal people that are actually appointed to uh, Parliament through their Senate seats and also some ministers to whom are Aboriginal people. So within the system today, as opposed to only 20 years ago, we've got many, many Aboriginal bureaucrats and uh, political identities working within the system. And I remember hearing throughout the years from a lot of those people that you know, they choose to work within the system in order for them to create the better outcomes for Aboriginal people that are entrapped into impoverishment and oppression within the social structures of society. And, you know, they say that they can make those changes more effectively from within the system. However, they really become part of that system. And the policies in which government create to maintain a lot of our people into oppressive impoverishment industrialises their lives so that a lot of money is generated out of the Aboriginal community through keeping it, you know, oppressed. And particularly in the areas of um, health, incarceration, education, and these are the very issues in which the government have declared as part of this country's reconciliation process, that they will close the gaps on the amount of suffering of Aboriginal people in this disadvantaged um, uh, process and areas. However, since all of these Aboriginal people that make up these positions within the system, what's been noted and... Uh, spoken about is how these gaps have actually widened. So it, in my mind, creates the question of, really, you either work for the oppressor and you carry out the deeds and the policies of the oppressor, or you work with the oppressed. There's no real sweet ground of compromise that you can justify your position within that system. You actually become part of it. Kyle Wanju to this, the 15th story of tribal fires coming out of the Dumbatung Aboriginal Corporation in Perth, Western Australia. This story is titled Vengeance. Vengeance actually means a punishment inflicted to something done wrong and or the cause of injury. And it's apt because in this story we want to look back over, you know, two or three decades in which where Aboriginal people were challenged with many, many uh, political issues and uh, issues dealing with social implications through those policies. And look at how things have changed to where today it's a very different world out there for our people. Not all, but, you know, a vast and ever-growing uh, aspect of the community.
But I want to give a tribute, firstly, of this story to all of those harmless, innocent and peaceful souls who have been dragged into dark, damp prisons, for those who have had their children stolen away, for those who are facing the living hell and the despair of severe addiction, those lost in the torment of mental illness, for those of us in the freeze suffering the insanity of ice, and especially to those of our young and frail who at this very moment are having their innocence shattered at the hands of monsters, may our campfires burn for you forever. This story is also a tribute to a great Noongar man to whom we recently lost. He passed away. He was a board member of Dumbatung. However, he was much more than just a board member. He was our comrade in arms. He was our brother. He had the back of both myself and Selina when you know many challenges came down on Dumbatung, both politically and socially. He was um, an incredible human being who fought for the rights of justice and the human rights of our people. And his place here at the fires of Dumbatung, you know, could never be fulfilled. That place will always remain empty because it's unfulfillable. And I want to give a tribute to the late Mr John Powell. And may you rest in peace, John, until we meet again. So when you look back in the 1980s and you, you know, you understand that, you know, Aboriginal people had very little resources. Uh, All of the organisations were situated in one block within East Perth, which is a place where a lot of the fringe camps were developed in relationship to the last of the stolen generation populations that merged into East Perth to reconnect with families. So, of course, that was the place in which the organisations were set up to service that particular population. And, you know, East Perth today, if you were to look at East Perth, it's, you know, it's an extremely affluent and privileged suburb. It's been totally redeveloped. And unlike the old East Perth, it's got a direct access to the arena, which is a multi-million dollar football, uh, you know, oval, which connects then on to, you know, one of the country's biggest capitalistic commercial whirlpools, which is the Crown Casino. And all of the apartments and the redevelopment in East Perth made it, again, an extremely privileged white suburb. And where once many, many Aboriginal fires of these fringe camps burnt, you could be forgiven today for never knowing that a single Aboriginal person ever lived in East Perth. So the changes in architectural design and, you know, the movement of, you know, what they call the salt and pepper policies of the housing departments that moved these forms of inner city ghettos. And every city in Australia had these types of, you know, um, gathering places within the inner city. And, of course, Sydney's Redfern is a major example of where people collectively gathered for the very same reasons as they did in East Perth. Sherberg up in uh, Brisbane is another. And, you know, uh, they were also in Adelaide and, and uh, in the Northern Territory. So this was a transition period of where, you know, Aboriginal people were coming in from the uh, land, coming in from the, the, the bush via either mission life where the kids were taken when they were, you know, forcibly removed from their biological parents and or onto reserves. And reserves were situated, you know, a kilometre or two from the major regional towns and 
you know, all the reserves were were just slab concrete, you know, and or shanty uh, dwellings made of um, corrugated steel structure. So, you know, it was no heating and there was no, you know, fresh water. You would have to, you know, take that water if it wasn't put through to the reserves by the councils from the rivers. And, you know, Aboriginal people were also subject to a whole host of laws in which governed those reserves. And a number of those laws were that you were curfewed, you would have to be out of the town area or the town site by 6pm every evening or you would be arrested by the police for uh, vagrancy and for, you know, for breaking that curfew. You uh, had also, um, you know, laws which governed how, you know, you were to keep your your uh, dwelling. Um, they were all banned from, obviously, from, you know, alcohol being bought into and onto the reserves. And you also had... At that time, through the Native Welfare Act, you also had heinous policies and laws which basically, you know, looked at if a person, an Aboriginal person, denounced their culture and their identity to their culture, which is their customary cultural law, and that they had, um, you know, uh, taken heed of the law not to speak the language of their mother's tongue, and that not to practice, again, ceremonial activity. They were then given the right to apply for citizenship to, um, you know, the Australian society. And then in, you know, 1967, um, there was a referendum in this country that, you know, was taken and it was a referendum that was put to the Australian people to vote on whether Aboriginal people should be able to vote or not. And, of course, that referendum was one of Australia's very few um, successful referendums and it wasn't until 1967 that Aboriginal people had the right to vote. So back in the 1980s, and that's when I first started working in the Aboriginal community, around 84, 85, so the mid-80s, and, you know, I saw these resources that were, you know, allocated to Aboriginal affairs, and you had to struggle for resources. If you weren't within organisations, let's say, that were dealing directly with healthcare and or legal issues and or childcare. It was very, very difficult to get resources outside those three uh, areas, but particularly for culture because culture was one entity that was still extremely suppressed in terms of our people's rights to practice that culture, particularly on land masses through customary law. So, you know, the government still had a hard line on ensuring that that culture was going to be, you know, eliminated from the lives of all of our people. So there was only at that time three major national bodies that, you know, were able to host one major meeting every two years and then a meeting of its executive each year. And the first one was NAHO, which was the National Aboriginal and Islander Health Organisation. And, you know, I attended those meetings at NAHO across Australia and, you know, they would be considerably represented. I mean, you know, people from a lot of remote communities and all of the urban health services would attend and policy matters discussed and you know, funding priorities and, you know, it would be certainly, um, you know, proposals that were passed on through to government and government bodies and had a lot of media attention as well. I remember the very famous Professor Fred Hollows, who was a eye specialist, who was a massive supporter of the uh, NAHO movement and would address 
NAHO in terms of trachoma and other eye health diseases and um, issues dealing with Aboriginal eyesight in remote communities. And also there was a doctor, Dr Bill Roberts, who again was a massive supporter and a very highly identified and respected doctor in Victoria. So, you know, our national committees had some very uh, articulated and you know, intellectually gifted professionals that were you know, helping support the Aboriginal health issues, um, particularly, you know, those um, that NAHO were, um, were uh, you know, prioritising. The other one was uh, SNAKE, which was the secretariat for the National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare Agencies. And that particular national body would meet to discuss a whole number and range of issues from the force removal and the after trauma of the stolen generations and the ingrained trauma of the stolen generations. They also looked at policy development in order to, you know, try to prevent further government force removal or removal of Aboriginal children through, you know, um, contemporary policies and, you know, and childcare in general. And I think, you know, Snake had a very, very important role in terms of the uh, care of our young children and it needed to have a national representative body. And that body was effective. And I think that body still exists to this day. The other body was NAILS, which is the National Aboriginal and Islander Legal Services. And NAILS looked specifically at issues dealing with the law and justice issues and, of course, incarceration, but particularly juvenile incarceration and policies of justice reform. And, you know, for decades... Nails has existed and they still exist to this day as well. But my point is, is that there was only those three gatherings, you know, conferences in which Aboriginal people could actually attend. And today, you know, when you look at, you know, issues in which companies run national conferences for Aboriginal people, there's just conference after conference after conference with research papers being delivered and presentations by, you know, the elite black academics to whom and, you know, have got their PhD degrees and, um, you know, present on subject matters. And uh, there's also non-Aboriginal people that are uh, able to present within the conference structures in terms of um, today. So there's this rolling bandwagon of conferences that are held within, you know, five-star venues and, you know, people uh, eat off the best of the what the menus of this country can provide and, you know, travel from city to city and, uh, again, you know, they fly 27, 30,000 feet above the problems within our communities and are disconnected from the problems within our community because, again, the gaps in which we mentioned earlier aren't closing. And these conferences that are structured today that are represented by, you know, all of the, uh, you know, Aboriginal uh, academics have had, again, very, very little um, uh, advantage on closing the gap. And I think that's questionable because I think, you know, a lot of that money that goes into uh, attending these conferences and not just presenting but being within the audience capacity is paid out of money which is funded by NIAA to major uh, NGOs and Aboriginal ACOs that are no longer really community-based, but they're operating more like mainstream services. And that money, I believe, could and should be better off spent on proper program delivery, 
that's structured through policies of self-determination and are more active in, in, in being, you know, created by people within our own communities. And I think that's something that as a community we need to really address. And, you know, when you look at the issues that were fundamental in the early 80s, and, you know, we're talking now about land rights, not specifically about um, native title, but we had a symbol that was created, I think, in 72, and it was first flown at the um, 10 embassies in Canberra, and... It was an aspiration, it was a, um, an inspiration to our people. It was the Aboriginal flag which bore the three colours. And for those out there listening to uh, this story, may not know, but the three colours on the flag make up red, black and yellow. And the, uh, the black represents the people, the Aboriginal people, the red represents the red earth and the red ochre and also the blood loss of our great warriors that stood strong against the forced occupation of this country. The yellow circle in the middle of the, the two colours represents the sun, the giver of life. And in there was our aspiration to fight for, you know, our land here in this country. And I remember when we first started using the flag in our rallies and protests here at Dumbatung, and we held some major protest rallies at Dumbatung for many different purposes, and some of them were land rights rallies and rallies against racism in the media and housing and the issue of cultural exploitation. And I remember when you would raise that flag, there would be a direct intervention by the authorities and particularly the police who would just turn up and, you know, they would start confiscating and, and, and taking the flags and ripping them out of the ground and where they were hanging and putting them in the back of their police vehicles and paddy wagons, as they called them. However, you know, we continued with those uh, flags and, you know, I remember during them times our young people who wore those colours on T-shirts and uh, emblems on and in the clothing that, you know, they would be faced with massive brutality from the system and particularly from the police here in Perth and the southwest of Western Australia. They near had those colours belted out from them. And it was sad because, you know, again, that was our symbol that represented land rights. And I think land rights was the very threat to the social structures of Australia that you know, was far greater than any threat externally in which they were facing. Even the issue of refugees and the issue of, you know, um, the, uh, what they called the yellow peril, you know, the very one issue in which they feared the most was Aboriginal land rights. So when you chucked a spear of fear straight through the heart of the social structures of this country, which was the Aboriginal flag, that injured them. That showed them that Aboriginal people were resisting against their forced occupation. That we had a symbol that claimed this land to be ours. And, of course, that whole land rights um, process was watered down through the native title process and what became of land rights. But the flag also was pacified to a point where, you know, they registered the flag under the National Policy Flag Act of Australia and started flying it in every conceivable place. So, you know, during then and into the year of the decades of the, you know, century of the 2000 and on through 2010 to 15, that flag started to appear 
alongside the Australian flag. Every time you turn your TV set on and the you know news was on or some article where they were interviewing a politician, they would always have either an Aboriginal painting set up behind them or a small Aboriginal flag alongside the Australian flag. You would see it now flying outside alongside the Australian flag and the state flag in you know some states and also the uh, LGBTIQ flag, which you know I feel is a you know a more a, a lifestyle than our flag that represents a race of people. And so our flag now flies you know outside university campuses right across this country. It even flies outside of police stations and it flies you know on near every state parliament building. Uh, it's part of all the celebrations uh, that Aboriginal people uh, participate in. It flies above the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So the flag is noted everywhere by the common eye. And a lot of people, I believe, still don't really understand the history of that flag, how that flag was totally pacified and disempowered from our people and our struggle and our rights and how now it became part of the Australian landscape of near becoming another flag representing Australiana. And I think that, you know, that flag was defeated in the process in what it represented. However, we still stand proud and we still stand strong in terms of the colours of the red, black and yellow. And when you look at issues also like, you know, the celebrations, let's say, of NAIDOC and you've got the, you know, original NAIDOC really being a, uh, a gathering and a, you know, doing up of a number of documents that were about the human rights of Aboriginal people in the eastern states that was called the National Aboriginal and Islander Day of Observance. And it was a protest day. It was a day of, again, fighting for our rights as Aboriginal people. And as NAIDOC started to evolve and then become an annual event on the Australian calendar, you know, throughout each year, NAIDOC then started to change again in its formats and, you know, what and how NAIDOC would uh, become. So we started to see some very, very alien concepts of uh, values that were becoming activities of NAIDOC that certainly wouldn't have been part of our old people's way or our cultural ways, spiritually. And, you know, we started to see these um, initiatives such as the award systems where, you know, they would give an award for Aboriginal of the Year or you know, artist of the year or scholar of the year, and even a beauty pageant like Miss Nadoc become part of the process. So, you know, these awards and what they represented, that's really a, ultimately at the core of Western systems. You know, values of awards would have never been part of our cultural ways. So we were being intimidated and we were being introduced to these types of, um, you know, values and activities that just were not, I believe, uh, representative of our of our culture, which NADOC should have always been held to be accountable to our communities as being culturally viable, giving strengths of identity to our young people. And then, of course, we started to see, you know, the ball being uh, part of the NADOC um, celebrations. So at the end of each NAIDOC week, Aboriginal people would celebrate, um, you know, being Aboriginal by, you know, having a ball. And I suppose in the old times, and you look back in the old school, and I'm talking the 70s and the 80s, you know, funding for the ball was very hard come by from government, you know, funding budgets for NAIDOC. So most of the balls were held in either light industrial areas in conference room of companies, major companies. And, you know, we used to see the ball held in different university 
uh, conference halls, the Italian Hellenic centres here in Perth, and it would have been the same in every state. And then as time went on and, you know, it came into these contemporary modern times, NADOC has become a massive um, uh, extravaganza of celebration with a lot of glitz and a lot of, um, you know, of course, uh, costings to, you know, attending a lot of the NADOC um, activities. You can obviously, you know, attend the openings of NADOC and, you know, they're massive to what they once were, but... You know, again, it's, uh, you know, become like an expo. I think here just recently this year in Perth, they had 56 stores and every government department, NGO, every, you know, identity other than that near of Aboriginal people were represented within that expo, right down to Food Bank and, you know, St Vincent's de Paul. And, you know, I just think it's a capitalisation on, you know, the, the uh, process of NADOC by non-Aboriginal interests that um, near but now have overwhelmed that whole um, uh, gathering and opening. And there's a number of openings because local shires have now become extremely um, involved with NADOC and each shire has its own award systems. You know, they appoint elders within their own given regions to open NADOC week. So there's many open opening of NADOC weeks that just continuously happen throughout the, you know, uh, different suburbs and different areas of, of the cities. So NADOC becomes a very confusing process because in a lot of ways we've been disempowered from running those um, initiatives and activities that once made up the structures of NADOC. As hard as NADOC was to run in the 70s and the 80s and coordinate, the one thing that we as Aboriginal people could be really proud of was the fact that we'd done it by our own self-determining processes. We did it our way for our people. Today, the NADOC ball in Perth is called the Chevron NADOC ball, and of course Chevron is a multitude, a conglomerate of, you know, different mining companies. Um, you know, you've got a lot of um, industrial funding into NADOC and, of course, NADOC now, you know, um, in terms of its participation in all of its audience capacities is majority really is, you know, probably non-Aboriginal people that, um, you know, uh, celebrate in its uh, activities. So I think NADOC somehow in the darkness of its um, transitioning into where it is today through all the sponsorship deals with mining companies and, you know, wetland people like West Farmers, which is obviously the biggest agricultural, um, you know, corporations and conglomerates again in the southwest that are responsible for destroying all of our land um, you look at the issue with The Voice and you've just had an announcement by Rio Tinto, BHP and Woodside that they were going to contribute $2 million per uh, mining company into the promotion of uh, the yes vote. And they also, you know, also sponsor a lot of Aboriginal activity. So here on one hand you've got, you know, industrialists who blow up sacred sites in our and on our lands and they blow them up at will and they've destroyed um, you know the connection between Aboriginal people and the land and you know they've destroyed it globally for indigenous people. But here we are in the year 2023 accepting their sponsorships to run what's left, of our cultural, you know, activism and identity. And I think there's a real hypocrisy there of, you know, trading their sponsored funding for them to be part of that destructive element in which our people suffer from as we become more and more assimilated through the processes of, uh, you know, education and, uh, 
you know, processes of the white man's world, you know, in its fullest sense. And we're indoctrinated, many of us, into the religious um, concepts of, you know, Western-based uh, Middle Eastern religions. And there we lose a sense of who we are. And these companies are, you know, putting all of that resource and that, that funding into ensuring that that is lost. And I think as Aboriginal people we need to, you know, take steps forward so that, um, you know, we can at least have opportunities to speak about these issues as a people. And I think it's really important because part of this now um, advancement towards the future for our people, which is truth-telling, um, reconciliation and the voice, you know, that's the way in which the governments are going to take our people in terms of our human rights and who we are and move forward. And there'd be many senior Aboriginal people who would be able to see the, you know, the hidden uh, trickery, the hidden deceit of what these so-called promises, of what these three issues will actually deliver to Aboriginal people that are in the grassroots suffering the greater, which is having a voice which is totally oppressed and silenced by, by the very um, policies in which, um, you know, have capitalised on by ensuring that only a number and a small number at that of our people move into affluency and privilege while the rest of our people uh, move into and are through laws uh, hurled into juvenile institutions like Bankshire Hill, into the prison systems, families that are broken by the pain and suffering of the pandemic of suicide and, um, you know, are really fighting just to simply keep alive out there in the community, you know, I think that we need a, an honesty to that truthful and that issue of truth-telling. And I think that, you know, when you look at truth-telling, you know, truth comes in many different uh, forms. As I know, most people would understand that, you know, the truth cuts deep and it can be a double-bladed sword because, you know, when a truth-teller does speak, you know, revelations are open for people to understand and see things in a very different way. You know, there are very powerful and influential people within the social structures of society, such as, you know, people involved within the political systems, as we've spoken about, you know, presidents and prime ministers and heads of, you know, you know varying in different countries right around the globe. And Dumbertung has always, you know, commented strongly in a lot of our presentations, the bigger the politician, the bigger the lie. And I think that, you know, politicians are a group of people I put little faith and trust in. And I found that, you know, the laws in which parliament and the rich evoke into legislation protect the rich, but jail the impoverished. And Dumbatung also says that, you know, our incarceration has become an industry because if you jail one black man in Western Australia, 10 white men get rich. And they're people from, you know, prison wardens, superintendents, judges, lawyers, service delivery people, people to whom make up looking after or supposedly maintaining the services to the incarcerated are many, and they then become, you know, the benefactors of the industry of incarceration. So, you know, to the governments, it's in their interest to ensure that, you know, the prisons in this country are maintained and full of our people. And the same could be said regarding mental health and health in general. All those areas which we mentioned earlier where the gap isn't closing but it's widening are actual industries that the government have very cleverly capitalised on 
by politicising the issue of Aboriginal people in terms of their social dysfunctions and punishing them for being the victims in terms of what our people have been through and the ingrained trauma of previous, uh, you know, government policies. And, you know, when you look at, you know, um, men of great faith, you can, you know, understand men like the Pope and men to whom head up, you know, major church groups around the world, uh, be it either, you know, uh, the Muslim faith, Christianity, and or, um, you know, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, whatever religion, you know, they have their own pathways to what they believe in, and a lot of that is not connected with the earth or the land. So, you know, I give little faith to religious spectrums and belief systems. And then, of course, you know, you've got the storytellers. And I think the storytellers, in its proper sense, you know, a storyteller who's empowered into a spiritual realm of mysticism in which they understand certain things through lived experience and can articulate you know, messages of truth that, you know, isn't possible to access through academic curriculums or clinical processes or political influence. This form of knowledge comes from a different place. It's difficult to articulate, but it is a form of knowledge that, um, you know, can change and move the consciousness of people. And I think when the consciousness of people is moved, a certain amount of pain and suffering is felt because when the consciousness is moved, it can expose in a lot of ways the way in which the affluent and the privileged have gained their empowerment through the oppression and the dispossession of Indigenous people and many other issues that deal with humanity and the world of things and also issues dealing with the now you know, major concerns of uh, the political realms of different and varying countries, such as climate change, war, famine, those things in which our old people had the knowledge of how to live in a landscape and in a, in, you know, on country where, you know, they never suffered the consequences of war or famine or um, issues dealing with um, what the Western world uh, fears the most because we didn't have that within our value system. It was a very different value system. So, you know, when you hear of great storytellers, if you like, and prophets, that type of truth is always persecuted. And it's persecuted by, um, you know, a system and a society that, um, you know, ensures that those that understand that form of knowledge and can express it are often persecuted to death. And, you know, you can cast, if you're a Christian, you know, Jesus Christ himself was persecuted and crucified on the cross. Muhammad had to flee from his homelands because he was under a form of persecution. Malcolm X, shot to death, was certainly a victim of truth-telling persecution. Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, the great Muhammad Ali, Crazy Horse, Lenny Bruce, John Lennon, the Kennedy, and there's been many, many more great men to whom, again, had this, this unique form of storytelling, again, that could change consciousness through truth. But, you know, real truth-telling, I think, is something in which um, can't really be aligned with, you know, those two other tiers of the advancement of our people into the future, such as, um, you know, uh, reconciliation and or the voice, unless that truth-telling is truth-telling that falls in to that very deep and dark and burning truth. I want to 
refer to the introduction of a book I wrote to expose a lot of the exploitation that was happening in and on the fringes of East Perth during the 80s and the 90s here in Perth. And I called the book Hamburgers for Masterpieces. And I'm going to um, present and read some of the passages that opens the story. And we can go through and maybe just look at what some of these uh, statements actually represent. And it starts off with how much money in the world of artistic creative expression can be made from pain and suffering. How many academic theses, doctrines and professorships can be awarded to research fellows for theorising trauma associated with genocide, racial oppression, brutality, including self-injury and suicide, without ever leaving the comfort and the safety zones of their university or their political offices. And what that reflects and what that, you know, statement is about is the fact that, you know, you can get a PhD or, you know, upon a thesis in terms of how you research the subject matter and what, you know, that uh, subject is. By never really going into the community and connecting with the community to get your research properly documented, you can get it through, you know, safe areas such as the depositories of um, knowledge and information in universities or state libraries here such as the Batty Library and or political agencies that keep depositories of, you know, historical information. These academics become armchair human rights advocates who express conformist views, advocating a false sense of representation within academic lecture halls, political assemblies, international foreign affairs forums that forge our struggle and resistance into agendas that manipulate our human rights into preconceived ideals of historical hypocrisy and deceit. So it's a deceiving way of bringing that false sense of reputation into you know, forums around the world such as the you know, you know, human rights forums and um, you know, uh, forums dealing with the World Health Organization and you know, Save the Children forums. And you know, it's, it's, it's a massive way of, of deceiving that you know, there's a connection of that knowledge that's delivered in presentations that have come directly from the people to who suffer it the most. How many of our people are seeking their identity and history at the bottom end of an archive box in some state library or academic corridor? And I know this to be true because when I wrote that, I remember a lot of our people who were in archival libraries and historic libraries, looking for uh, connection to their identity and their originality from the areas in which they come from in relationship to how it was, you know, recorded uh, during the time of colonisation and, you know, the first hundred years of occupation in this, um, in this land. Most of these archives have been documented to distort the truth by early colonists, journalists, anthropologists, botanists, criminologists, historians and lawyers. The deceit of these archives endorses curriculum applause that accepts it as truth when it is given credence by Aboriginal scholars. This endorses the lies further as academic individualism is credited by the robes of distinction and excellence. In many ways, Academia pacifies our resistance and struggle. It pursues a value that disempowers our cultural and political strength to control our own destiny through a value system that is based on traditional cultural knowledge. And that cultural knowledge and tradition is the basis in terms of how many Aboriginal academics make their way through to uh, accessing uh, degrees and also followed by PhD and then become doctors and uh, you know professors of their chosen area of study. 
So I believe that the true resistance against spiritual genocide, identity loss, and the attempt of political and religious assimilation will not be awarded solace in academic institutions, political ideologies, or introduced religious prophecies of salvation. I make that clear in regards to um, our resistance. I don't believe that we can draw on our resistance from those academic institutions or those political ideologies. Nor will it be forged from the New Age contemporary ideologies that merge from individual interpretations of alternative forms of knowledge, both in the realms of magic, reflected falsely within acclaimed ancient wisdoms of global ownership. And we talk there specifically about some of the campaigns in which Dumbatung has run against you know, new age authors such as Marlowe Morgan Down Under that used our cultural knowledge to falsify a whole story that became a bestseller on the New York Times list and was 31 weeks as a bestseller and claimed to be, you know, of, um, of a true nature when in fact it was a false prophecy by a um, new age practitioner to whom used our culture for their own um, self-glory. Nor will it be found in the halls of Geneva or in the illusionary false status of power positions, such as associated professorships, doctor titles or statements profiles. Aboriginal leadership that is created and forged by outside interests such as the media, political or academic created leadership, ministerially appointed leadership and alien religious leadership can be just as easily destroyed by the very nature that creates it. And that's a commentary in which speaks for itself. And unfortunately, in this country, I've seen many, many uh, you know, strong and good-willed men and women to whom you know, have been created in a lot of ways by, you know, the media and have craved that um, media attention. Because if you're, again, as it says, created by media in terms of your leadership, well, they can destroy it just as quick as they create it. For in many ways, the qualifications of high distinction are no different to the brass-forged breastplates of the conformed leaders of tribal chieftains whose eyes were always filled with sorrow and conformity that were awarded to maintain the nullification of Aboriginal resistance across this country. And that was a way in which, of course, you know, the military and governments that were set up in the you know, turn of the century and that were governing, uh, you know, the frontiers as, you know, colonialism started to empower the white man's occupation of this country. They did put king plates around the neck of individuals and made them the sole person to whom, you know, government interests and the colonisers' interests would be talked to and from. You know, our culture was never an individualised-led culture. And uh, again, I think that talks for itself. I've looked deep into the photographs of those men in breastplates and kingplates and I've seen sorrow in their eyes and I've seen, um, you know, a sadness. But when I look into the eyes of those that are chained and shackled on their way to places like Rottnest Island, concentration camp of war... I see strength and pride, even though they may be shackled and chained. For it can be seen clearly in the contrary, the pride and the strength and the blood-stained eyes of our great warriors that were shackled and chained and forced into forbidden land. Current political-inspired themes of reconciliation that gives credence to feel-good hypocrisies such as welcome to country and smoking ceremonies, including contemporary and traditional dance that inspires a middle-class capacity of entertainment. This will never accomplish the political propaganda of Aboriginal people's rightful ownership and native title of this country. For this is no more than a concept and a corrupt attempt 
of the government's so-called ethical response to Aboriginal recognition, which has often sprouted, however, never legislated. And the right to our land and, 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 you know, getting back the land in which we so rightfully own as Aboriginal people will never be part of what The Voice will be set up to do. And you can certainly assure yourself of that. Our old people could see the bloodshed of the massacre grounds. Our young stolen children could see the high walls of the missions. Our incarcerated could hear the haunting screams of our enslaved. The ongoing genocide that takes the will to live and defines the self-destruction of injury and suicide can't be seen. So it is the extreme strategies of the continued death of unseen genocide as it now prevails for our younger generations, a strong and proud culture spiritually incarcerated into the shackles of a dominant bondage. Genocide has cut our tongue. We walk in darkness of despair, cast out like paupers from kingdoms into darkness, where the ancestral spirits light the fears of the Junga, the Woodarchie and the Bullet where sounds of familiarity turn strange, creating fear of spiritual torment and psychological anguish, a never-ending deterioration of the spiritual world of our ancestral songlines, dreams and ceremonies. Our children walk in swamps of mud, fear of dreams no longer able to be interpreted by the wisdom of culture, incarcerated forever into his assimilative policies of education and religion. This enforces the belief that all that endeavours to live outside his world will ultimately perish. This is one area which is extremely important to understand because a lot of the work that myself and Selena does is at night where our young people and the families call us to go out and visit them. They're always of strong will. In other words, they're not vague of mind. There's been no drugs or alcohol. We won't go if there's drugs or alcohol into a family that are saying they're being culturally or spiritually tormented. And, you know, we've comforted the mother and the fathers of young children whom, you know, because of their bloodlines and who they are as young Aboriginal people, are getting and becoming connected to that spiritual world. So therefore, they need to be protected from what is in that world that can frighten them and does frighten them. And we've worked for many years in that part of social well-being. But, you know, we don't talk often through our performance indicators or to government about that type of social well-being because it's hard for them to understand and accept that that's, how our culture is and, you know, having it in our blood and our young people are still affected by the very spiritualism of that world. This enforces the belief that all that endeavours to live outside of this world will again ultimately perish. The first radiance that reflected the Earth's granite formations as it pinnacled the ocean surface was the Great Prongerups in the southwest a thousand million years ago. This is where the planet's first flora birthed colour, the red of the kangaroo paw, giving birth to the great nations of the Bibbulmun people. Our survival as Noongar people will be forged in our spiritual identity and strength of who we are as a people, giving authority and respect to our elders so their knowledge can again become the fire sticks through the darkness of pain and suffering, reigniting the ashes of our once great campfires, lighting the way for the unification of our people. The hundreds of specialist professionals who have been employed to alleviate Aboriginal disadvantage have not deterred the racial oppression, prison statistics, ill health or mental illness within our communities. So what that simply states is, is that we need to remain connected to our birthrights. How can a man understand starvation if he has never felt the pain of hunger? How can a man understand the torture of freezing cold numbness when he has always been warm? How can a man understand slavery when he has always been free? How can a man ever understand brutality or rape if he has always been nurtured, safe and protected? 
How could he ever judge a life worthless if he has always been fortunate? How can he understand fear, terror and fright if he's always been protected, sheltered and privileged? In fact, they have capitalised and profited from the misery that our people suffer, both in the materialistic and the spiritual plight of poverty. The pain and the suffering of our people who have experienced forced institutionalisation into mission life, being incarcerated and later becoming the fringe dwellers who faced premature death will ultimately strengthen the lives of our future generations who will learn from their suffering and pain, giving redemption and respect that no Aboriginal life has ever been lived in vain. Many generations from now, when these stories of truth are used as weapons against the system of denial, as the intergenerational effects of genocide lessen the statistical records of Indigenous incarceration, the political abuse and social marginalisation, it will then be known that it's not what we have that makes us different, it's what we have all lost that makes us the same. Jungaminya Bomiga were the words spoken by the mother of Yagan when she witnessed thousands of Nyungars as they breathed in the air, dying from introduced diseases. The translation language means the smell of the white man is killing us. In our traditional Aboriginal Communities, there was never malnutrition or starvation. There was no influenza, smallpox or heart disease. There was no prostitution, child sexual abuse or severe violence against women or children. There was no alcoholism or drug addiction. They were, they were all introduced into the country when the tall ships from England arrived onto the shorelines. Our living cultures are the oldest ceremonies on the face of the earth. We need to protect our spirit against forced influences that will render it void of integrity and dignity. We need to protect the pride and the visions of our aspirations and dreams, never allowing the forced occupation to victimise the sense of shackled enslavement greater than that of our human rights to freedom and salvation. As the great Mel, the eye of the yoga, the eagle casts an endless shadow of movement over the sacred Buja, our land, void of any emotional reason, pierced by the bloodshed of our great warriors, the wisdom of our elders and the strengths of our future generations. Jungaminya Bomaga, the smell of the white man is killing us, is the Dumbatung Aboriginal Corporation statement describing the ongoing oppression and spiritual genocide of our people. And what we believe here at Dumbatung, and what we know because we did the redress stories that consisted of over 300 stories where the stolen generation members were abused and neglected whilst they were in state care when they came to Dumbatung during the years between 2007 to 2012 to tell us their stories so we could record their stories and we could actually then, you know, send that into government for compensation. What we found was one of the most heinous parts of those legislations that forcibly removed Aboriginal children from their families and split up all the siblings into different, you know, missions across the southwest. So in other words, one sister would go to Sister Kate's, a brother would go to Rowlands, another sister to Carolup, another brother to Noangra. So therefore all the siblings were split up as well as the children taken from the mother and the father. So what they did in essence when you know they were released from the missions, the last of the stolen generation members, they washed all that pain away, that psychological and emotional distress, and washed it away with alcohol. And the doctors would readily make available prescriptions for you know um, antidepressant uh, medications, uh, anti-anxiety 
medications. And, you know, what happened was that emotional and that psychological trauma began to manifest into uh, massive physical ailments such as diabetes, rheumatic heart disease, liver breakdown, uh, kidneys, total body breakdowns, and the mental health issues were extraordinary. Um, The lateral violence was just incredible on the fringes and amongst our people. So the one thing in which was the most heinous part of the aspect of that policy was that they created a void in the lives of our people. They took away our people's right to love. And Dumbatung believes solely with every part of maintaining our fires to keep burning that what we must replace within the lives of all of our people is a reconnection of the respect of compassion and love. May our campfires burn forever.